On Easter Sunday a few years back, I awoke early in the morning excited and ready to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But at some point in the morning, I I just absentmindedly checked Facebook and a status update appeared in my news feed, which immediately caught my attention. It was posted by a, a young lady who I had graduated with some 14 years ago, and the status simply said this, Happy Zombie Jesus Day. Now, I was not accustomed to seeing the word zombie and the name of Jesus used in the same sentence, so I was caught off guard, I was a bit startled, and it took me a few seconds to understand what exactly she meant, but when I finally had regained my, my intellectual bearings, it made perfect sense. This particular young lady is an architect, she is very bright, and she is also an avowed atheist, and to her mind, the notion that Jesus was raised from the dead is nothing short of absurd. It's absurd. Now, she doesn't actually think that the Christian faith claims, like we've been singing here this morning, that Jesus is a zombie. She doesn't think that that's what we think. She knows the difference between a resurrection and the undead. But this was simply her way of poking a little fun at a belief that she considers to be a bizarre bizarre, and a people that she considers to be irrational. And and I I wasn't particularly offended. It takes a whole lot to knock me off my rocker on Easter morning. But I was intrigued. Because how different was, was that Sunday morning for me than it was for her? I was headed to church to worship a crucified and risen Savior to proclaim the good news of the resurrection of the Son of God. And, and her Sunday was going to be filled with sleeping in and drinking coffee and marveling at the stupidity of people like me. And people like you. Rarely in my life has the distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian, a believer and an unbeliever, been so clear to me. She does not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. Consequently, she does not believe that he was anything more than just a Galilean Jew who lived in the first century. Which means that she does not believe that his death upon the cross has any significance for anyone, least of all for her. I do believe that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. Therefore, I believe that he is the Son of God. And therefore, I believe that his death has enormous and everlasting significance for me and for anyone who will believe. Because of the resurrection of the dead, I believe that Christ is who he said he was, namely, Lord, the Son of God, and that he did what he said he was going to do, die to atone for the sins of his people and rise again on the third day, thus ushering in the everlasting kingdom of God. And I believe those things precisely because on the morning of April the 9th, 30 AD, he walked out of his tomb. She doesn't believe any of that, precisely because she believed that he was still in the tomb on that Easter morning. This is the essential difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, between the saved and the lost, between heaven and hell. It is this, it is whether or not you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, because... If you believe that and you're thinking logically and you're thinking rationally, then you're going to come inevitably 
to some conclusions. If you believe that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead, then you must account for why that is. Surely an event that rare, as in never before done in the history of the world, is significant. If you truly believe that Jesus was raised, then you must inquire as to why. And you must inquire as to how. And you must inquire as to what it means and as to who this man is who was raised again from the dead. And if you seek the answers to those questions in what I will submit to you is the only reasonable place in which they may be found, namely the record of the eyewitnesses, then I think that you're going to come to the same conclusion as have countless millions from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who was delivered over for our transgressions and was raised for our justification. That's why the Apostle Paul stated that faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the essential hallmark of those who are saved. The essential hallmark. You you take away everything else, you boil it down to to, to its very core, and it is this, that. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over the next two Sundays, we're going to look at the account of not just his resurrection, but also his appearances from the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. And we're going to be unpacking together the five encounters that people had with the risen Lord Jesus. And each encounter is going to reveal something to us about the relationship between the resurrection of Christ and the faith that saves. We'll look at the first two this week, and then I hope that you'll come back to explore the last three next week. Encounter number one was not actually with the risen Christ, but it was with two of his disciples, Peter and John, and a tomb That was empty. So we begin reading in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone already had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. We're going to turn our attention to Mary in just a moment. She's the second encounter, verses 11 to 18. But for now, John mentions her in order to explain how it was that Peter and John became aware that something was up. How Peter and John became aware that the tomb where Jesus had been laid on Friday was now vacant. The other Gospels mention a number of women who came to the tomb early in the morning, but it's likely that that John mentions only Mary because she was the first to actually see the risen Lord. But she and the other women had gotten up very early in the morning to come, and they were coming to the tomb for a purpose. In the darkness of the pre-dawn hours, they were going to anoint Jesus' body, says Luke 23. And when they arrived, they found the stone already moved from the mouth of the tomb. Now Mary was startled. We'll We'll give her that we would be startled too. And what she immediately did was to run back and to tell the others. She found Simon Peter and John, the beloved disciple, and she told them, she said this, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now I want you to notice carefully the words of Mary. 
They've taken him away. Despite the Lord's persistent predictions, as they were traveling, making that last journey to Jerusalem, he told them, not once, not twice, but three times, that when we get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of sinners, and they will beat him, and they will arrest him, and they will try him, and they will put him to death, and on the third day, he will rise from the dead. He told them that. And despite those persistent predictions, the only explanation that she can come up with for why he is not there is that they must have taken him. The tomb's empty. Someone must have stolen the body. It's not that grave robbery was an illogical conclusion to draw from the evidence. The robbing of graves was a sufficient event in the first century world that the emperor Claudius ordered capital punishment for anyone who was found raiding tombs and stealing bodies or even breaking the seal that laid across the tombs. It was a big issue. It was a common occurrence. But I point out Mary's immediate conclusion of grave robbery in order to show that even those who were told ahead of time by the Lord himself that he would rise on the third day, even those who had witnessed his arrest, his betrayal, his brutal death in accordance with everything that Jesus had spoken, even when they were confronted by the evidence of an empty tomb, they simply could not believe that he had been raised. Because faith in a risen Savior is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. More on that in a moment. Look at verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. I had an Old Testament professor who thought he was quite clever and he used to say the joke that, that when he was preaching children's sermons on the resurrection, he would remind them that even Jesus made his bed before he got up. John arrived at the tomb first. Because he ran faster, which he, he, he must have delighted in years past to record for Peter's uh, approval. He arrived at the tomb first, and when he saw the strips of linen in the body of, and the body of Jesus, sorry, the strips of linen in which the body of Jesus had been wrapped lying there, he looks, he observes. Then Peter arrives, and Peter doesn't stand at the, at the entrance to the tomb, he actually enters into the tomb, and he found the linen wrappings and the face cloth, think a a funeral shroud, rolled up neatly and lying by itself. You've got to ask yourself, why are these details important? What's up with telling us about the linen wrappings and the face cloth? Why waste the papyrus and the ink to put this into the gospel account? It's for a purpose, and we need to ask what that purpose is. I think that they're important Number one, because they cast doubt on the notion that Jesus' body was stolen. Think about it. Who breaks into a tomb, and one guarded by Roman soldiers at that, and unwraps the corpse and rolls up the face shroud before taking his body away? Not only would that have been time-consuming and, frankly, gross, but why would they have left behind the expensive linen 
and the even more expensive spices. They left the valuable stuff and they took the body, if indeed his body was stolen. But these details are important for another reason. I want you to think back to John chapter 11. In John 11, it tells the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Right? Lazarus, his friend, had died. Jesus goes to the tomb. He stands outside of the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And it says that the man who was dead came forth, but he was still bound in linen wrappings and the face cloth was still wrapped around his head. That's why Jesus had to say to those who were gathered around, unbind him and let him go. See, there are numerous resurrections recorded in Scripture, but like Lazarus, they all died again. They were raised to life in the same body in which they had died, and that same body continued to age and continued to deteriorate and continued to die. But when the Lord Jesus was raised, his body apparently passed through the grave clothes. In the same way that he would suddenly appear that evening in the disciples' sight. In the same way that he would walk through walls and appear inside rooms with locked doors. See, the resurrection body of Jesus is a body of a different kind than the natural body which he had before. It is still a physical body. He still bears the marks of crucifixion in his, in his hands and the spear mark in his side. He still grows hungry and he eats. He can be touched. He's not merely an apparition. He's not a ghost. This is not merely a spiritual resurrection. It is a bodily resurrection, but of a different kind than Lazarus, of a different kind than the small child, of a different kind than the, than the woman that Elijah raised from the dead. It was a resurrection of a different kind. It is what Paul called in 1 Corinthians 15 a supernatural, imperishable, eternal body. And Paul says, and so shall ours be on that day when we are raised with him, when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first. Our bodies will be like his, never to die again. Verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered. All right, so now John is inside the tomb. And he saw... And he believed. He saw and he believed. But then John adds, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their homes. What did he see that caused him to believe? The only thing we have in the text is the undisturbed grave clothes and the face cloth neatly rolled up and set aside. And John's thinking to himself, this isn't, this isn't a grave robbery. This is a resurrection. Verse 9 tells us that neither John nor Peter understood at the time all of the theological implications of Christ's resurrection. But John saw the evidence and he believed. His faith was evidential and reasonable, even if not yet fully theological. And that's what I want us to draw out of this first encounter between Peter, John, and the empty tomb. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a reasonable faith supported by solid historical 
evidence. There is reason to believe in Christ's resurrection. It is not, as some think, an absurd, irrational notion believed only by pre-modern cultures and post-enlightenment fundamentalists. Zombie Jesus people. First of all, everyone in the first century agreed that the tomb was empty. You read through the four accounts of the resurrection and you will come to that conclusion. Both Christ's disciples and his enemies affirmed that no one was in the tomb. In fact, when news of the empty tomb reached the Jewish leaders, they didn't say, no, 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 go look again. They didn't say, see, see, he's there, he's there right where we put him, because that's what dead people do. They stay where you put him. No, they concocted a story paying off the Roman soldiers to say that they fell asleep, and while they were asleep, the disciples came and took the body, affirming the story of the disciples that they were preaching in the streets that the tomb was, in fact, empty. In fact, Matthew 28 says that even by the time of Matthew's writing of the gospel, the story of the the soldiers falling asleep and the disciples stealing the body was still widely circulated, he says, widely circulated among the Jews. But nobody is widely circulating the story that he's still in the tomb. And besides, if the tomb were not empty, then why, as the disciples began to Proclaim that Christ had been raised. As Peter stands up in in, in the temple courts in Jerusalem, 50 days after Passover, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls down, and he begins to say that this, this Jesus that you crucified and put to death, God has raised him up again, and he is both Lord and Christ. Did they not say, no, his body's still there. In fact, Peter says, Do you remember David, the one who said you will not allow your Holy One to see decay? His body's still there. We could go dig it up if we want. You could do no such thing with Jesus' body. It's gone. If there had been a body, they would have produced it. And would have put an end to all this nonsense. 2,000 years of Christian history would have never happened if they'd have just brought the body back would have been more than enough to end the Apostles' charade. And we'd be watching golf this morning. No, all in the first century agreed that the tomb was empty. The disagreement surrounded the reason as to why. There are only two possible explanations for an empty tomb. All right, are you with me? Everyone agrees he's not there. Disagreement arises as to why he is not there. Only two possible explanations. Explanation number one, his body was stolen. Either by his disciples or by his enemies. If it was by his disciples and John and the rest were simply inventing this whole story of a resurrection, then why on earth, why on earth did they testify and give their lives to the story of the resurrection, give their lives to a lie when in fact Christ had not been raised? Either the disciples were deranged and deluded liars, all of them, all 11 of them, all 120 in the upper room, all 500 that Paul says Christ appeared to in the time between his resurrection and his ascension, all of them deranged, deluded liars. That's what you've got to believe if you believe that the disciples stole the body. Or else it's true. 
And I would submit to you that the only reasonable thing to believe is that he was raised, and that's the only truth that could account for such a change wrought in these men who just a few days prior were cowardly hiding and scattering while the master, the shepherd, was slaughtered. Cowering in fear, denying that they even knew him, and then afterwards they're standing up at the threat of death and many of them having their blood shed, saying, he is not dead, he is alive. Why? What produces that kind of courage? What produces that kind of change? A resurrection. They didn't die for a lie. They didn't steal his body. His enemies had no reason to steal his body. It would only lend credence to the claims that Jesus made beforehand that he was going to suffer and die and rise again on the third day. In fact, according to Matthew's gospel, the, Jesus, or the Jewish authorities knew that Jesus had promised to rise again, which is why they went to Pilate in the first place and requested guards. And again, if they had stolen the body, when the disciples began to preach that Christ was raised, why not just produce the body and put an end to all the absurdity? I trust that you are reasonable people. You are reasonable. You are semi-reasonable people. And I appeal to your reason this morning. I tell you, you have only two options. You can either believe that the empty tomb was the most elaborate hoax in human history, his body stolen by deranged lunatics who joyfully went to their deaths proclaiming that Jesus was raised, or that it was stolen by his enemies who failed to produce a body when they had every opportunity and reason to do so. That's option one. Or you can believe that Jesus of Nazareth was actually crucified, buried, and raised bodily from the dead on the third day, just as he promised that he would, and that he is therefore both Lord and Christ. There is no third option. You must come to grips with the empty tomb and explain why it's empty. You understand? You've got to, because there is a whole lot riding on the explanation to the empty tomb. Only one response I submit to you is reasonable and evidential, and it's not the grave robbery theory or the zombie Jesus theory. Second encounter takes place between the risen Lord Jesus and Mary Magdalene. We don't know much about Mary Magdalene. The only thing that we do know about her comes from Luke chapter 8 and verse 2, where it says that she had been possessed by seven demons. And when these demons had been driven out of her, presumably by Jesus himself, she became a passionate and ardent follower of Christ. Well, after telling Peter and John about the empty tomb, evidently Mary returned to the tomb herself. For in verse 11 we read this, But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Why don't you try and fathom the emotional strain on Mary? The one whom she followed, loved, worshipped, adored, trusted in. She had seen him brutally executed right before her eyes. And now someone's taken his body. 
as an act of adoration and an act of love, she's coming to the tomb to anoint his body, and it's not there. You can almost feel in this text her world crashing down around her. Confusion, doubt, fear, disappointment, grief, all mingling together to create this torrent of emotion. Her heart's just ripped open. Her dreams are shattered. Her faith is hanging by a thread. And it, it all happened so quickly. I mean, just, just think about it. A week ago, he's riding into Jerusalem like a king amidst palm branches and shouts of Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Five days later, he's nailed to a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem and then placed in a tomb, and now he's gone. Talk about a roller coaster. But as she stooped to take her first look into the tomb, through tear-filled eyes, she sees two angels dressed in brilliant white garments, seated at the head and at the foot of where Jesus' body had been laid. Verse 14, 13 rather. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. See, the the fog is not yet lifted. The lights have not yet penetrated the darkness and the doubt and the fear and the unbelief. It's still there. Verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus you find that strange? Did not know that it was Jesus. She walks in, she sees two white angels, or angels rather, dressed in brilliant white. She turns around, there's Jesus, and she doesn't recognize him. Which was not uncommon in the appearances after Jesus' resurrection. You remember the men on the road to Emmaus? They walk with Jesus for miles. And they don't even know that it's him. Until Jesus revealed himself to them. So Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Gardener. Supposing him to be the gardener. She turns around And she sees Jesus, and he appears to her to be uncommon, or rather common, unremarkable, ordinary, just a first century man. Just a gardener. So Jesus seems to all men common and unremarkable and even irrelevant. Until he calls them by name. Jesus may appear common and unremarkable and irrelevant to you this morning. And my prayer this morning and now is that he would call you by name. Jesus said to her, feel the power. This is is John's gospel. John is the one who, at the end of the Garden of Gethsemane, when the Roman soldiers are coming and and Jesus says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says three words, I am he. And it says all of them just, whoom, fell down. 
Check it out, John 19. In John's gospel, Jesus' words have immense, cosmic, life-giving, faith-enabling power. Lazarus, come forth, and he comes forth. Lazarus, live, and he lives. I am he, and whoom, they're on their faces. Mary, and she sees, and she recognizes, and she believes. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. John chapter 10, the good shepherd who knows his sheep, who lays down his life for his sheep, he calls them by name, and they hear, and they follow. And he leads them out. That's exactly what is going on here in John chapter 20. The good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and has taken it up again. He has called his own by name. And she hears. And she believes. And she follows. It was at the sound of his powerful, penetrating, personal call that the light dawned and the fog lifted and the scales fell from her eyes and she saw and she believed in the risen Lord Jesus and suddenly the gloom and the anguish are are melting away and giving way to unbridled joy and, and it just fills her heart and consumes her soul and she falls at the feet of the teacher and she clings to him with everything she has. It's a beautiful picture of saving faith. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Rather, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Lots of explanations as to what Jesus means there in verse 17. Stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. What does he mean? Simplest solution, which is usually best. Seems to me that Jesus was telling Mary that she needn't cling to him as if he were leaving that very second. He's going to spend 40 days with his people, including her. Now is not the time for clinging and weeping. Now is the time for going and proclaiming. Therefore, he says, I want you to go. I want you to tell my brethren that I'm ascending to my father and their father, to my God and their God. Stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to the father's right hand. And the message he sends with her is yet another announcement of his finished work. Look very closely and put it in the context. Tell my brethren, tell my brethren that I ascend to my father and their father, to my God and their God. I think the sense of this announcement is that as a result of his death and and resurrection and his imminent ascension to the father's right hand, these men who have abandoned him, scattered from him, denied him, They are now justified and reconciled to the Father. The Father of Jesus is their Father. The God of the Lord Jesus Christ is their God. He is their brethren, and they are His. In other words, they needn't be ashamed or afraid. They were not cast away. 
He did not say to Mary, Mary, you, you were there with me. You were there at the foot of the cross. Good job, pat on the back. Now, I want you to go tell the other cowards that if they want any part of this kingdom that I'm inaugurating, they better come crawling back on their hands and knees. Deny me. It's not what he says. Go and tell my brethren that I send to my father and their father, to my God and their God. In other words, it's, it's finished. I died for that sin too. No more shame, no more condemnation, no more fear. I wonder if some of you are ashamed to come into his presence this morning. Because of all those times you've failed to stand for Christ, all those times you've given into temptation, ran headlong into sin. You ever wake up on a Sunday morning, maybe like this morning, and you think that you're, you're far too sinful to come into his presence to worship? Are you ashamed this morning to come near to the living Christ? Because the message of verse 17 and 18 are that you needn't be. Jesus died to take away your sin and your guilt and your shame. And he rose and ascended and brought his blood into the presence of the Father who is now your Father to his God who is now your God. He calls you brother. He bids you to come boldly into his presence because of his death and now his resurrection. Who shall bring a charge against one of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who has died, yes, rather, who is raised, who is seated at the right hand, whoever makes intercession for us. There's no more shame, and there's no more condemnation, and there's no more separation. You can come, and you can come boldly because the risen Christ has prepared a way. This second encounter between Mary and the risen Lord Jesus points to a truth. It points to the necessity of Christ's sovereign and effectual call. It was was not until Jesus called Mary by name that she recognized him and believed. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's doing John 10. He's doing the good shepherd thing. Laid down his life for his sheep has authority to lay it down, has authority to take it up again. He knows his sheep. He's calling them by name. He's gathering them into his fold, and he's going to lead them out. So to you who believe this morning, I invite you just to sit in awe and in gratitude of the sovereign grace of Christ because what happened to Mary pictured for us in John chapter 20 is exactly what happened to you. How do I know? If it hadn't happened to you, you would not have seen and believed and worshipped. You would not have recognized him as anything but common and unremarkable and irrelevant. You would not have recognized him as your all-glorious Savior, as your good shepherd, and you would not have believed. But the risen Christ came to you, and he called you by name. He has known your name from all eternity. And he called you by name. 
And you saw and you believed and by faith you clung to him and you cling to him still. And your heart is full of joy unspeakable and full of glory because he called your name. What do you do do in the face of that kind of grace? You worship. You love If he had not called you, you would be sitting back with the rest of the world on this Easter morning looking at scorn at the rest of us and saying, Happy Zombie Jesus Day, idiots. But he called you. He called you by name. And now you can say, along with Mary and everyone else who believes, I have seen the Lord. And he is risen indeed. So what do we take away? Two encounters. We'll look at the next three next week. Two encounters from John 20. Here's one sentence that encapsulates what I want you to take away from this text. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a reasonable faith supernaturally given. The first encounter between Peter and John in the empty tomb reminds us that there is reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't, you don't check your logic at the door. You don't check your intellect at the door. You don't check your reason at the door. And just sort of walk blindly into this nonsensical idea. You examine the evidence. You use your logic and your reason. And you say there is no other explanation that holds water. There is every reason to believe in Christ's resurrection and faith in the resurrection of Christ is the only reasonable response to the historical evidence. When people refuse to believe in the resurrection of Christ, it is only because they are coming to the evidence with a preconceived notion that resurrection does not happen. In other words, if someone refuses to believe in the resurrection of Christ, it is not, it is not the result of insufficient evidence. It's the result of sin. I'll speak very boldly to some of you this morning. If you are here, maybe because it's Easter and you get together with family on Easter and, and your mom really wanted you to come to church and so, you know, mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Maybe you just came to kind of check out what it was all about. I don't know. If you're here this morning and you say, nonsense. I will tell you that the reason why you do not believe is not for lack of evidence. It is because you love the darkness rather than the light. And it will destroy you. second encounter between the risen Lord Jesus and Mary Magdalene delves further into this problem of faith. This encounter proves that even those, even those who might want 
to believe in Christ's resurrection like his disciples could not believe until the risen Christ opened their eyes and enlightened their minds and opened their hearts by the power of his sovereign and effectual and gracious call. It is only when the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and has authority to take it up again comes to his own and calls them by name that they see and hear and believe and follow and he leads them out. Salvation is of the Lord beginning and ending and everything in between is all of his grace which means that he gets all of the glory. So, do you see how these things work together? If you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, it's your own fault because you love darkness. And if you believe in the resurrection of Christ, you had nothing to do with it because he called you by name. Because God will have that no one will boast in this work that he's done. The faith which believes in Christ's resurrection is a Reasonable faith, supernaturally given. So that those who do not believe are without excuse, for the evidence is more than sufficient to prove Christ's resurrection. And those of us who believe are without boast, save in Christ alone, because we would still be blind and unbelieving and loving the darkness had he not called us by name. So to the unbelieving this morning, I simply lay before you the evidence. I ask you to set aside your presuppositions and to examine it. And I ask you to examine whether or not the sin that prevents you from believing is worth what you're paying. I would be glad to point you to resources that will go far more deeply into the historical evidence than I did this morning. But please, 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 I beg of you, do not shrug this off as a question which has no relevance to you. I'm claiming to you that a man who called himself the son of the living God said that he was going to be crucified and rise again on the third day, and then he did it. And I think that that demands your attention this morning. It demands a response. If Jesus has not been raised, then everything that we do here is vanity. It's been a complete waste of time because everything is hinging on this question. What if he has? Surely you can see the implications. If he has, then he is who he said he was and he did what he said he was going to do. And he is both Lord and Christ. And the only reasonable response is to fall on your knees before him in repentance and to trust in him as your only Savior and to follow him as your only Lord and King. And that's precisely what I call upon you to do. Just like the apostles who were witnesses of the resurrection stood before the Jews and said, therefore repent, And believe. I say the same thing to you. Repent and believe. Call upon his name. Ask him to save you from the judgment to come. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. And to grant to you new life. And then like Thomas who we're going to read about next week. You can can look upon him and say my Lord and my God. And to you who believe this morning. I want to encourage you once again, just cling to him. Cling to him. 
fall before the risen Christ in humility and in gratitude and in heartfelt worship. He calls you by name. He calls you his brethren. He ascended to his father and to yours, to his God and to your God, where he always lives to make intercession for you. And one day he will return for who? For you. And he will raise you to be made like him, made like him, like him we rise, we sang. There is reason to believe, unbeliever this morning, and there is reason to worship people of God. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed into the image of his death that somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. It was the the heart of the Apostle Paul. It's my heart for you this morning. Know him in the power of his death and in the power of his resurrection. He is able and he is willing to save all who call upon him. And he is to be worshipped by all who call upon him. Our Lord and our God. Risen and crucified Lord Jesus. I pray that in the congregation this morning. I pray that you would call forth sinners by name. That you would speak a word that enlightens their minds and gives sight to their eyes and gives hearing to their ears and gives life to their heart and that they would see you as the only solution for sin, as the the crucified and risen Savior and they would call out, my Lord and my God, save me. Do that today, I pray for your glory. And then I pray for the people of God here today in the midst of whatever circumstances we come out of, we need to be reminded that we serve a risen Lord. The risen Christ has loved us from all eternity. He's called us by name. We're his brethren. We're his beloved. We're his sheep. And he is our shepherd. I pray that you would cause our hearts this morning to delight in the worship of you. Jesus, move by the power of the Holy Spirit. Move in the midst of your people. Move in the midst of this congregation. And to you who are here this morning who do not believe, I call upon you. Trust in Christ. Call upon his name and he will save. If you need help with that, I will be up here at the front during this time of response. And I would love to pray with you for you, to explain the gospel to you, to introduce you to the risen Lord Jesus. You come. To the rest of us, let's stand together and delight in the Lord, our righteousness.